I love being salmon. Me too. Why don't we share some salmon facts with our friends, Finley? I'd love to. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. to Terra Welcome to the show. My name is Sarah Chitzaz, and I'll be your host as we finish off our two-part series on Pacific salmon. Last week, we wet our feet in the wonderful and wild world of Pacific salmon. Today, we'll be taking a deeper dive into salmon aquaculture and salmon health in BC. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was created on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples in the territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, or so-called Vancouver. As we talked about last week, Pacific salmon play key roles in Indigenous cultural, political, and social processes and traditions. Current Indigenous Guardians programs across so-called Canada are engaged in conservation, land, and resource management and stewardship. The traditional knowledge of First Nations is key to understanding the history of salmon populations. First Nations are also playing an essential role in collecting data of salmon populations, working to restore wild Pacific salmon populations, and providing the information needed to manage sustainable wild salmon fisheries along the coast. In 2019, seven coastal First Nations, the Heltsuk Nation, Kittisu First Nation, Metlakatla First Nation, New Hulk Nation, Awikano Nation, Gitgat First Nation, and Githakatla Nation, and the federal Canadian government signed the Fisheries Resources Reconciliation Agreement, also called the FRAA. This agreement is intended to support the co-governance of fisheries across the north and central coast and to support First Nations in participating in the fisheries economy. Agreements like the FRAA are important as we work toward reconciliation in the context of fisheries management and ocean resources stewardship and conservation. As we discuss salmon farming and the health of Pacific salmon in this episode, I encourage you to consider the ways in which Indigenous peoples may be impacted by threats posed to wild salmon. Last week, in our episode on the wild world of Pacific salmon, we learned about why Pacific salmon are important, some of the threats they face, what salmon management looks like, and what some conservation actions that are being taken to protect wild salmon look like. This week, we'll wade further into the topic of salmon farming in BC which is an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to Pacific salmon conservation and health. Later on, we'll hear more about salmon farming and salmon health from Andrew Bateman, the Salmon Health Manager with the Pacific Salmon Foundation. But first, let's get a sense of the lay of the land, or rather, the lay of the water, of aquaculture and salmon farming. To tell us a bit more about salmon and salmon farming, here's our favorite salmon friends, Francis and Finley. And I'm Finley. We're swimming in with some super salmon facts. Francis, did you know that there are five species of Pacific salmon? 
No, what are they? The five species of Pacific salmon are Chinook, Chum, Coho, Sockeye, and Pink. Oh, that's right. And each species looks a bit different and have some different characteristics, like being different sizes and spending different amounts of time migrating. Do you know which species we are, Finley? Or imaginary, Francis. We can be any species we want. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Finley, do you know what makes me sad? What makes you sad, Francis? Salmon populations have been in decline since the 1990s. And like Emmy Page from Pacific Wild told us last week, a lot of the threats to salmon like us are related to human actions. Oh yeah, that's true, Francis. Hey Francis, did you know that those big nets with Atlantic salmon we swam by the other day are called salmon farms? No. What's a salmon farm? Salmon farms are one type of what's called aquaculture. Aquaculture means the culturing of aquatic species. Sometimes people also call it aqua farming or fish farming. Aquaculture is used for a variety of organisms, from algae to shellfish to fish like salmon. People started farming salmon in BC around the 1970s. Part of why people started salmon farming was because our populations were already beginning to decline by the end of the 1900s. Wow, Finley. I didn't know any of that. Thanks, Francis and Finley. When we talk about aquaculture, it is really important to note that aquaculture, specifically salmon farming in the context of BC, is quite a contentious and complicated issue. Salmon farms can take a number of forms. One kind of aquaculture that we hear a lot about in the news is open net pen salmon farms. Open net pen salmon farms look like big fishing nets floating in the ocean that hold the fish in the farm. There are semi-closed containment salmon farms, which also may be in the ocean, but they limit the flow of water in and out of the farm system. And then there are also closed containment farms, which are basically tanks that hold the salmon, and these can be built on land rather than in the ocean. Pacific salmon are generally a very challenging resource to manage. Because they are anadromous, which means they live in both freshwater and saltwater during their life cycles, BC's Pacific salmon hatch and begin their lives in our freshwater systems in BC, but they spend anywhere from one to seven years, depending on which species they are, in the ocean. Migratory species like Pacific salmon are also difficult to manage because they don't follow the borders that people have assigned to land. And when talking about salmon farming, it isn't as simple as just determining whether or not it has negative environmental impacts because there are other factors that need to be considered when thinking about salmon farming. Salmon farming plays a large role in BC's economy, and around 7,000 people in BC are employed in salmon farming. The impacts of changes in salmon farming on individual livelihoods is really important to bear in mind as we work toward making salmon farming as sustainable and safe for wild populations as possible. To learn more about Pacific Salmon Health and Salmon Farming in BC, I spoke to Andrew Bateman from the Pacific Salmon Foundation. 
As we paddle on into the interview, I want to give our listeners a heads up that we had some trouble with background noise in the audio for this interview, but we really want to get you to hear Andrew's expertise on salmon. Let's hear from Andrew now. My name is Andrew Baton. I'm the Salmon Health Manager with the Pacific Salmon Foundation. And what that means is that I do research for the most part around issues pertaining to salmon health, Pacific salmon health. And so that ranges from stressors in the marine environment that may be affecting salmon. So things like excess heat or not enough oxygen or that kind of thing to uh, infectious agents like Pisene or Coreovirus and Nasobaculum maritimum, which are two agents that I've done some work on. And that can be in general, it can also be in particular relation to salmon aquaculture, open net salmon aquaculture in BC. Talking more about disease and infection, what role have we seen that play in overall abundance of Pacific salmon stocks? Like I know our salmon stocks have been in decline for many years. Is that kind of one of the larger drivers of that decline? Yeah, the decline of, of wild Pacific salmon is, as you say, multifactorial. It's from, from logging impacts to climate change. Salmon farming is, is one potential extra stressor that, that for certain stocks is producing a, a more downward trend than may otherwise be the case in, in a given population. Whether salmon farming is, is a major driver of declines is really going to depend on what population of salmon we're talking about, what species of salmon we're talking about. So in the Pacific, in British Columbia, there are at least five species of salmon, pink, chum, coho, chinook, and sockeye. And then there's also steelhead, which some people classify as salmon, others would count them as a trout. They're in the same genus as those other Pacific salmon species for the, the nerdy biologists in the audience. But various of those different species may be more or less impacted by diseases or parasites that they might pick up from salmon. So for example, pink salmon, which enter the ocean as tiny little juveniles pretty soon after they hatch in their natal rivers, they, they swim by salmon farms even before they have visible scales. And so when parasites like sea lice may come from a salmon farm and attach to these juvenile pink salmon, they don't have defenses built up in the same way that older fish might. So they can be impacted directly by the parasites in some cases. And then parasites on those juvenile pink salmon, we actually know that predators and, and some of the predators of pink salmon are actually coho salmon, interestingly which are usually about a year older than those pink salmon when they swim out of rivers. So they sort of follow the pink salmon out of rivers almost, and then they're in the same area in the marine environment. The pink salmon may pick up a parasite from the salmon farm, and then a coho salmon is more likely to eat that parasitized pink salmon than its neighbor that doesn't have any interesting quirks of biology. So it depends on the species and obviously depends on the location. So even pink salmon populations, which we're pretty sure do suffer an impact from salmon farms, it really depends on whether whether those juvenile fish are coming out of a river nearby to a salmon farm or a cluster of salmon farms, or whether they can enter the marine environment and get an early life in the marine environment that's free of salmon farm impacts, can grow bigger, can get their scales built up, and then maybe encounter salmon farms at a later stage, or, or maybe not in their migration out towards the open ocean. Now, we have evidence of certain kinds of impacts in some Pacific salmon populations. 
much of the evidence that we have for the sort of population level declines associated with salmon farming comes from what we might call population models. So we can count salmon when they're spawning in rivers, and we can take that number and say, okay, based on the number of spawners we saw in year X, the eggs that those fish laid, those salmon laid in the river, which then swim out as juveniles, in the case of pink salmon, that, that would be the following year. They then come back a couple of years later to spawn themselves. And based on historical patterns, we can see relationships between the number of spawners and the number of returns. So in managing fisheries generally, models, mathematical descriptions of, of these patterns are used to give us an idea of how many fish are available to catch or to you know, sustain the population year after year after year. And what we see in areas with high levels of salmon farming is that on average, the number of fish that come back to spawn is depressed relative to the number we would expect when salmon farms are absent. And this is true in the case of pink salmon, like I mentioned. This is true in the case of coho salmon, the other predators that eat the pink salmon that I mentioned. We haven't seen that effect at that population level in chum salmon, for example, another species that is a bit nuanced. And lots of the evidence for those effects that I mentioned comes from one region in BC, the Breton Archipelago. And that's somewhere we've just had a lot of focus in terms of potential or, or real salmon farm impacts. And other regions where farms exist haven't had the same level of attention. And the quirks of biology, of ecology, sort of idiosyncrasies of the ocean may change what we see in those other areas. So that's a really long answer, but in part that's because it's not entirely a simple story. On the whole, based on the information that we have and the models we have and what we know about salmon biology, we can say that salmon farms definitely do present a risk to wild salmon populations, and that can manifest in certain circumstances as declines in those spawning populations. That was Andrew Bateman talking about Pacific salmon. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. Now, let's plunge back into our conversation with Andrew. What makes it so hard in particular to get conclusive data about the spread of disease between salmon farms and wild salmon in BC? The more we look into infectious agents that pertain to salmon farming and wild salmon, the more cause for concern we see. That's not true with every infectious agent that we consider by any means, but there's a whole host of bacteria, viruses, parasites that can infect salmon. Some of them are almost benign or benign. Others have, have more impacts. Some may impact farm salmon in particular, but some may, that, that effect may spill over onto wilds. It is very difficult to study the impacts of infectious agents, of disease in wild salmon. And there are a number of reasons for that. For one, before you do anything with wild salmon in the ocean, you have to catch them first. So how we go about catching and, and sampling from a scientific perspective wild salmon, it's a challenge that, that many researchers spend a lot of their time thinking about. So do we go out with and line? Do we go out with a net? Are we targeting tiny juveniles just after they've come out of the river? Are we targeting them in the river in some cases? And, and getting kind of the comparison there. 
are we targeting fish when they're a little bit larger? Do we want to see fish in the open ocean when as they're maturing into adults? All these things present different challenges to catch fish. The other challenge on top of that is that on a farm, you have a net around fish. If a fish gets sick or dies, you have a chance of actually seeing that dead or sick fish in the net. Now, you might be able to haul up the net. You might be, might be able to use a dip net on a pole and reach down and grab the fish. In the wild, in the ocean, salmon don't exist in isolation. They don't just live to be sampled by humans. If they get sick, their health can be compromised. They might, they might die naturally, but more often than not, we would actually expect them to be picked off by a predator. And if they're getting picked off by a predator when they're sick, we're less likely to see sick fish. So the fish we're sampling in the ocean may appear to be healthy, but there may have been a whole host of them that got sick from one source or another, and then we're eating. And that's just that's just the reality. So when studying these potential impacts, we have to really consider multiple lines of evidence. In the case of the, the absolute most impactful viruses or bacteria in the ocean, we might actually not expect to see fish infected with those if they're getting infected and dying right away. In some species, an infectious agent like PRV may be able to sort of sustain itself and fish may get sick, but not, not die very often. And, and that's the scenario we seem to see with PRV infecting Atlantic salmon on salmon farms in British Columbia. For other species, it may have more of an impact. So disease from an infectious agent depends not just on the infectious agent, but also on the host that it's infecting. And so PRV across a different species of Pacific salmon may have more or less severe effects. And those effects may be more or less severe than what we see in Atlantic salmon. So again, it's a complicated story and it's easy to just talk about, oh, salmon disease, but salmon are not all the same and the diseases are not all the same. And like I mentioned, there's, there's challenges in, in capturing wild fish and in even seeing, if you do capture wild fish, in seeing sick fish. So there's a lot going on. It's, it's very challenging. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of give you the, uh, the, the PSF line on salmon farming. PSF, based on multiple lines of evidence, like I mentioned, is really of the opinion that open net salmon farming in the marine environment is not the right choice in the context of wild salmon. So it presents enough risks that we have come out and made a public statement that we are not in favor of open net salmon farming, and we are in favor of transitioning away from that. That could be towards one of a number of alternate ways to raise farmed salmon in the interests of wild salmon. And that's, that's really, at the end of the day, the name of the game. We're trying to protect wild salmon, and salmon farming just poses too much of a risk in its current form. And luckily, that's, that's now also the position of the federal government. So federal government policy is to transition away from open net salmon farming by 2025. And so we are excited about that. And we're very supportive of that policy. And really, my colleagues and I, in the work that we do, are, are trying to provide the best possible information and science to be able to support that policy and to also support whatever comes after. So we are in a position that we can use some of these genetic and genomic tools potentially to help monitor the situation once open net farms are gone and do the best job that we can of protecting wild salmon and ensuring that they're, they're around for years, centuries, millennia to come.
I'm curious about what management of aquaculture or salmon aquaculture specifically in open at Penn. What does that look like? For the last number of years, salmon aquaculture in BC, that's not the case in, in the Atlantic, but in British Columbia, is regulated almost entirely by the, the federal government, by Fisheries and Oceans Canada, DFO. There are a number of tools that DFO uses to regulate and help to manage salmon aquaculture. Audits are, are one tool, so they do conduct audits on salmon farms in British Columbia. There are other reporting tools, other regulatory mechanisms that are used. So an example is that salmon farms have to themselves count the number of sea lice on the fish on their farms on a monthly basis, and they have to report the associated data to Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Those data, after a review period, actually get published publicly on the DFO website. And so there's checks and balances like that in case that, in theory, should help to keep farms operating within parameters that the regulator has deemed appropriate for, for that endeavor. And there, I mean, there's a whole host of regulations associated with salmon farming, and a number of them relate to infectious agents, a number of them relate to sea lice, and auditing of farms is a tool that DFO uses to try and check up on salmon farming companies, because in many cases they're self-reporting, and so the audits are a tool that gets used to try and make sure the data being delivered back to DFO is accurate. And Based on work that a colleague and I have done, it's not, not always the case, it would seem. Are there any actions that listeners can take to support Pacific salmon generally? The general answer is yes. We can all do things to help support wild salmon in particular. And those can be a whole range of different actions, you know, whether it's being more careful about the type of salmon that we're eating on our dinner plates. So there are a number of organizations that rate different fish species for the level of impacts that eating those fish and catching those fish may have on wild populations. So being aware of things like OceanWise or the seafood watch list from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, those can be useful tools to help us make more sustainable choices. At the other end of the spectrum, people can can volunteer with a local organization, certainly in BC, to help you know, actually roll up their pants and get into a, a stream and help with stream restoration in some way. There are lots of organizations, and full disclosure, Pacific Salmon Foundation is one of them, that take donations and, and have a mandate to protect wild salmon. So if you can't actually get your hands dirty and protect salmon in that way, and you, even if you don't like eating salmon, then you can, you can donate to one of those organizations and support the good work that they do. What is your favorite thing about salmon? That's a really hard question. Sorry. <laughs> They're very good. I mean, personally, I do eat salmon. I try to make choices that are as sustainable as possible from uh, the wild salmon perspective. I love eating salmon. Uh, I think it's delicious, but I think salmon are just a spectacular species. They're 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 so beautiful in the wild in life and form such an integral part of the ecosystems of the west coast of Canada. And even their effects permeate inland. They're not, they don't only have effects along the coast, but they migrate 
vast distances bringing ocean resources, ocean nutrients into the interior of the province. And it's a pretty incredible natural history story. And, and so really, I think everything about salmon is amazing. I agree, but they're just very cool. <laughs> they're inspirational. That was Andrew Bateman talking about Pacific salmon health and salmon farming in BC. Having grown up in the interior of BC, I had the privilege of getting to personally see the Adams River salmon run during field trips when I was growing up. I think this experience is what made me feel so in awe of salmon throughout my life and what inspired me to share their story with you. In December of 2020, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans at the time, Bernadette Jordans, announced her decision to phase out open net pen salmon farms in BC's Discovery Islands by June of 2022. This decision is in line with recommendations from what is called the Cohen Commission of Inquiry into the Decline of Sockeye Salmon in the Fraser River. I'll call this the Cohen Commission for short. The Cohen Commission was first published in 2012 and it included 75 recommendations for actions to be taken to improve the sustainability of our sockeye salmon fisheries. The Cohen Commission specifically recommends that the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans prohibits open net pen fish farming in the Discovery Islands as of the fall of 2020, unless they believe that these fish farms will pose no more than a minimal risk of harm to wild sockeye salmon. Now, the decision by Minister Jordans to phase out open net pen salmon farms in the Discovery Islands has been challenged by a few salmon farming companies. Currently, there's a team of lawyers from EcoJustice, representing the David Suzuki Foundation, Georgia Strait Alliance, Living Ocean Society, Watershed Watch, and an independent biologist named Alexandra Morton in federal court to fight for the decision by Jordans to be upheld. This case began in October of 2021, and we're still waiting to hear the outcome. So if you're interested in sockeye salmon health, I recommend keeping an eye out for updates on this case. As we heard from Andrew Bateman earlier on in this episode, there are many factors involved in salmon health, and the connection between salmon farms and the health of wild salmon is complicated. That being said, I do personally believe that in order to protect our wild sockeye salmon, Minister Jordan's decision should be upheld and we should work toward finding safer and more sustainable ways to farm salmon and maintain the safety of wild Pacific salmon populations. That's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Sarah Chitzaz. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Sarah Chitsas. Special thanks to Andrew Bateman for the interview and Elizabeth Dowdell and Lizzie Barron for voicing the splendid salmon, Francis and Finley. You can reach us for comments or questions via email at terra at cjsr.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. 
For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. If you'd like to hear more about Pacific salmon, check out last week's episode on the wild world of Pacific salmon. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. beyond we're mature salmon from the ocean beyond working our way back to our natal pond